0: Well, it is a great joy and privilege and responsibility to be able to open God's Word. So let's do that together this morning. Turn to the very end of Ephesians 6, and as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. The very end of Ephesians chapter 6, we find ourselves in verses 21 through 24 this morning. I'm going to read those words in your hearing, and as I do, I would just sort of build on what Pastor Justin just uh, prayed and, and reminded us all of, and that is that the words in front of us, these are the holy words of God. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 21, so that you, so that you also may know how I, how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. I suppose it's possible at one level to mistake the Apostle Paul for some sort of armchair theologian. Especially if you just sort of read his letter to the church at Ephesus from 30,000 feet. Again, it's possible. You might think to yourself, well, this guy is just sort of sitting off in some ivory tower somewhere, just disconnected from reality. For Paul, we think it's all about dusty doctrine. For him, it's things like election and predestination. It's redemption and reconciliation. It's trinity and truth. Wait, wait, this guy's just sort of out of touch. All he cares about are his systems and his, his big words and his theology. Well, if you think that, then I think you are sorely mistaken. Because while Paul does love doctrine, as every Christian should, Paul also loves Christ, and it becomes very apparent that he also loves people. And he loves people not just because that is sort of his personality trait or something like that, but actually because he himself has come to experience the love of Christ. And here's the point. When you know that you are loved by Christ, well, you can't help but love others. The cup just runs over. You see all of this here at the end of Ephesians in a very powerful way. Let me be clear. These last few verses, church, these are not throwaway verses. These are actually nourishment for our weary souls. We need the Word of God, and we need all of the Word of God, and that includes Ephesians 6, 21-24. So as we look at Paul's parting words here, let me give you sort of the two big ideas that that we're going to seek to wrap our heads and our hearts around this morning. On the one hand, we're going to see how Paul commends his friends, and then we're going to see how he blesses the church. And then at the end, I'm going to give you some application. So in these concluding words, we are introduced to Paul's friend, a man with a wonderfully fun name to say, Tychicus. Now let me say at the front end, we don't know a lot about this guy. He does not take center stage in the New Testament, not by a long shot. But what we do know about him is actually quite encouraging. Most likely, Tychicus was actually a native of Ephesus. And he was probably converted under Paul's ministry. Remember from the book of Acts that Paul spent several years laboring in Ephesus. We also know from the book of Acts that Tychicus ended up accompanying Paul on at least one of his missionary journeys. And from that point on, it seems that Tychicus proved to be an invaluable aid to Paul. I say that because both Titus 3.12 and 2 Timothy 4.12, not to mention the passage that is in front of us this morning, these texts reveal to us that Tychicus was sent on several important assignments by Paul to assist local churches. In fact, Tychicus was so trustworthy that he appears to be both the author and courier of the letter that is in front of us. Let me explain. Most scholars agree that Paul dictated this letter and that he did so most likely, again, to his friend Tychicus. And if that sort of makes your skin crawl a little bit, you have to understand that this was extremely common in the ancient world. It happened all the time and we actually see explicit evidence of it in the New Testament itself. So if we were in a Sunday school setting, I might say something like this. Who wrote the book of Romans? And all of you very intelligent Christians would very quick to say, well, Paul did. And some of you very astute Christians would say, no, the Holy Spirit did. And we'd all have a good chuckle, and we'd know that you're the really smart ones. And, and it's true that the Holy Spirit is the one Who inspired the Apostle Paul to write the letter to the Romans? And it is true that Paul did write the letter to the Romans, sort of. I say sort of because this is what the book of Romans itself says. Are you listening? Romans 16 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, some of you are going, hold on, I'll give you the text again. It's Romans 16, 22. You can look it up on your own. I'm not making that up. This is very common, that you would have somebody who would dictate a letter to what they would call an amanuensis or a scribe, and they would write it down. And that's what Paul did with the letter to Romans. He told Tertius what to write. And again, this is common. You see this in, in all kinds of other of Paul's letters the ends of his letters they often conclude with him declaring that he wrote the greeting himself implying that the body of the letter was owing to dictation let me give you a couple more texts to make this case 1st corinthians 16:21 says i paul write this greeting with my own hand or colossians 4:18 ends this way I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. 2 Thessalonians is even more forceful. It reads at the very end, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And then he adds, This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So here's the punchline. Most likely, at least when it comes to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, Tychicus wrote down Paul's words. Right? Tychicus wrote Ephesians one one through Ephesians six twenty. He was the scribe, and then starting at verse twenty one, Paul takes the pen out of Tychicus's hand and he begins to write the final greeting, which was Paul's custom. Now I mentioned a moment ago. It's also more than probable that Tychicus was the courier of this letter. You have to remember that Paul is in prison during this whole time. He can't just take this thing down to the post office himself. So he sends Tychicus, letter in hand, to the church at Ephesus. And I would just invite you to pause and think about that for a brief moment. Think how close of a relationship must have existed for Paul and Tychicus for that to take place. Think of how much Paul must have trusted Tychicus. It's actually quite remarkable to consider. Well, if there was any doubt about any of this, and how Paul felt about Tychicus, we just need to look at verse 21 and see how Tychicus is described. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister. Now, I don't know about you, but I so want that to be my epithet. I want to strive to be known at the end of my life that I was a faithful brother. I'm sorry, a beloved brother and a faithful minister. I think that's something that we should all strive for. Now, to be clear here, that phrase brother, it it carries with it more of the idea than simply Tychicus is a Christian, though that is obviously included. Here in the context, it carries with it the idea that Tychicus is a co-worker of Paul's. It's not Paul and his junior. It's not Paul and his secretary. It's Paul and his co-worker. It's his equal. This whole thing shows us how humble Paul was and how highly he thought of his friend. In Paul's mind, these two men were equals. Let me just say in passing that this is one of the things that the gospel creates in God's people. What the gospel is doing, among other things, is creating in you and I as individuals and as in you and, you and I as a church, it is to be creating in us humility. And it's creating in us humility because when you truly come to see the heinousness of your sin, and at the same time you come to see the splendor of God's grace in Christ, when you and I are truly gripped by that reality, you have to understand, you cannot be prideful. You just can't. The gospel of grace Christ living and dying and rising for sinners like us. That gospel, it is the needle that pops the balloon of our pride. When you truly come to understand yourself and you truly come to understand the gospel, one of the evidences of that is that you are left small. You find yourself to be weak. You look in the mirror and you know that you are an utterly needy creature. And at that point, there is no room for pride. There's no room for pride because Christ is the one who takes up all the space. Tychicus also goes down in history as a faithful minister. That doesn't necessarily mean that Tychicus did pulpit supply, though he might have but it's actually the idea of how he always had Paul's back. For Paul, Tychicus was a constant source of encouragement. When Paul was low, when Paul was in need, there was Tychicus, Scripture in hand, pointing him back to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Church, I want to ask you, isn't that what we need more than anything? Isn't that the sort of friends the brothers, the sisters that we want to be and that we want to have in our lives. We want to be those with Scripture open who remind one another of the ironclad promises of the gospel. We don't want to settle for cliches. We don't want to settle for vain platitudes. We don't want to settle for merely just pats on the back. It'll all work itself out. We want to be those who open God's Word and encourage one another. As a Christian, what else do you have to offer? And as a Christian, settle for nothing less from your brothers and sisters. It's all of this that made Tychicus Tychicus. This was his character. And his character is no doubt the reason that Paul sent him on this particular mission. You'll notice that Paul has charged him with two vitally important assignments. First, he is to explain, and then he is to encourage. In terms of explaining, Tychicus was to bring, up the Ephesians, bring the Ephesians up to speed with respect to Paul and the circumstances surrounding him and his prison stint. You see this emphasized in verse 21. Paul is sending Tychicus so that you, that is you Christians in Ephesus, so that you also may know how I am. Remember, Paul's in prison, still in verse 21, and what I am doing, in the middle of verse 22, that you may know how we are. So you have to see, the church in Ephesus, it would have a whole lot of questions about Paul. The Christians there would want to know, how is his health? Is he remaining, standing strong? Do you know Tychicus? How long will he be imprisoned? How is his appeal going? Tell us, Tychicus, is Paul discouraged? How can we pray for him? What does he need from us? What can we send him? Tychicus, tell us what's going on. And so Paul has sent Tychicus to answer those questions. Tychicus will, end of verse 21, he will tell you everything. He will explain this to you. Tychicus has also gone to encourage. You see that there at the end of verse 22, and that he, that is Tychicus, and that Tychicus may encourage your hearts, that Tychicus may encourage you Christians. So not only would Tychicus have the inside track on Paul, but he'd also be more than acquainted with all the other churches and how they're faring in the ministry of Paul, right? Right? Think about this. Think think about how Tychicus could encourage the church. He would be able to testify of the recent converts and of their baptism. He'd be able to talk about uh, how new churches have been planted and and where the gospel is flourishing. He'd be able to update them on how how the gospel is spreading like wildfire even into the imperial court itself. And how despite Rome's best efforts and despite Rome's chains, the kingdom of God is advancing in a hostile world. Now, let me ask you, would you not be encouraged by hearing those things? Would you not be encouraged to hear of how Christ and his gospel is triumphing over evil? Wouldn't that bring great encouragement to your hearts? Sometimes as Christians, we tend to get sort of tunnel vision. We're pretty much convinced that the whole kingdom of God and what God is doing, it revolves around our zip code, right? It's very nice to have someone from a different land come, a different area come and tell us all the good things that God is doing. It it revitalizes our spirits, doesn't it? Well, this is why Tychicus has been dispatched. The congregation in Ephesus is worried about Paul and the news that Tychicus would bring, it would prove to be an oasis in a hot and dry desert. Now, after commending his beloved friend, that's when Paul officially concludes this letter. And he does so with a benediction, or if you don't know what that word actually means, an invocation of God to bring blessing. Don't, Don't fall into this trap of thinking that a benediction is merely sort of one of those well wishes or some sort of like cheap thing we say out of habit, like bless you when someone sneezes. No, a benediction is the pronouncement of God's blessing upon his covenant people. Paul ends almost all of his letters this way, which is why we end our services of worship that way. And when looking at this benediction, there are four powerfully important words that we don't want to miss, words that have really formed the backbone to the whole of the Ephesian letter. These four words, if you like, they are the heart and soul of our gospel vocabulary. Here they are, peace, love, faith, and grace. Grace. Let's explore each one real quick, and as we do, let's make sure we see how each one is rooted in Christ. Paul begins verse 23 by pronouncing, peace be to the brothers. Now, this idea of peace being a part of Paul's benediction, it should come as no surprise to us. Again, he ends a lot of his letters in this way. This is also why, incidentally enough, I pronounce to you each and every Lord's day, Peace be with you, because this is the pattern that we see in the Scriptures. But not only is the pronouncement of peace Paul's customary way of ending his letters, peace is also one of the central themes of this letter, isn't it? Let me ask you, through Christ's cross, what do we have? What do we get? What do we receive and the answer is peace. We have peace with God our Father, and we have peace with one another through the blood of Christ. You might remember, this is like the heartbeat of Ephesians 2. You might turn over there. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13. We are told, but now, Ephesians two thirteen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, talking about all you Gentiles, who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making, there it is again, peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, church, well, I might be tempted to re preach that sermon to you from Ephesians 2. I will restrain myself. But let's settle it here. What did Christ win for us on the cross? What did he purchase with his blood? And the answer of Scripture is nothing less than peace. And when you're reading in Scripture, particularly like Ephesians 2, and you're reading that word peace, this this blood-bought peace, don't think in terms of, well, this is merely an absence of war. This this is like a ceasefire or something like that. In and through Christ, what we actually find, what we receive, what we partake of is is wholeness. It's completeness. It's it's the way things ought to be. To be. Think back if you can. Go back to the garden. When Adam walked in the garden. In the cool of the day. And he experienced God's presence. When all of creation. Genesis 1. Was very good. When, when everything in creation. Was functioning and working as it ought. That's shalom. That's Peace. And that is restored to us only in Christ. I remember hearing the story of a retired couple back in the late 70s. They were afraid of impending nuclear war. And so they began to seek out a place to relocate, a place that they might sort of use as a, as a fallout to, to stay away from any of the, the wars that were going on. Apparently, they studied and they traveled, and they burned through a ton of cash trying to find this place of ultimate refuge. And then one day, they found the place. And so several months later, that, when that Christmas finally rolled around, they sent out cards to all their family and friends back in the United States. It turns out that they had moved to the Falkland Islands. Some of you know your history the soon-to-be battleground between Britain and Argentina. You see, what that couple learned was this. The peace that this world offers is a faux peace. Real peace, lasting peace. The peace that we're talking about in Scripture, peace with God, peace with one another. That's not found in a zip code. It is found in Christ Let's look at the second word that makes up our gospel vocabulary. It's the word love. Paul says, peace to the brothers and love. And this love, it comes middle of verse 23, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this love, you ask? Well, is it sort of a a Hallmark card? Is that the kind of love that this is? Is this sort of a Hollywood rom-com? What is love? Well, biblically speaking, this love is God's gracious and unending and undying commitment to be our God. Because think of it this way. This is the promise of the covenant incarnated. All that God has done through Christ by His Spirit, it has been so that... He will be our God and we will be his people. And the triune God has done this because he truly loves his church. And this love, the heart of God for his covenant people, Scripture portrays this love as something of a limitless love. That is to say, this isn't something that you can quantify. It's it's deeper than the oceans. It's higher than the mountains. And and you and I, we are unable to wrap our minds around it, just in the same way that you are unable to wrap your arms around the moon. Remember how Paul prayed for the saints in Ephesus? Remember back in Ephesians 3? He gets on his knees, and this is his prayer from Ephesians 3. He says that you, and he's speaking of the church, that the church, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints here's the limitless part, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ, that what surpasses knowledge. You see? It's one of those paradoxical prayers. It's a prayer that the church would know the unknowable. It's a prayer for the church to be able to grasp just something of the rich love of Christ. That we would be able to taste and see just something of this limitless love that we find in Christ. It's a limitless love. It's a love that is wide enough to forgive all our sins. It's a love that is long enough to last for all of eternity. It's a love that is high enough to take us all the way to heaven. And the best part is, it's a love that is deep enough to reach down to us in our sins and to rescue us. This is the love of Christ. This is the love of God that is revealed to us in the gospel. Let's press on. Let's hear this third word of this glorious benediction, and it's the word faith. You see it there, if you continue to have your eyes in verse 23. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might wonder, well, why does Paul add this to his benediction? Because if you think about it, peace and love and grace, well, that is stuff that we receive, right? But faith, well, that is something that we do, right? That's, that's sort of our part. So how does this fit with a benediction? How does this fit with God bringing blessing to his people? And that's actually a really good question. I think it's probably because faith is the way that we receive Christ and rest in Christ. In other words, it's only by faith, it's only by our empty hands lifted up to receive from God, it's only by faith that we receive the peace and the love that Paul has just spoken of. Maybe some of you caught this story. I I read it, I don't know how many months, maybe two, three, four months ago, about a man who acquired like a truckload of Bitcoin back in the day when it was worth nothing. If I remember right, when I read the story, the amount that that Bitcoin is currently valued at is something like $350 million. But he can't remember his password He's totally locked out from it. He can't access it. And that's because if you don't know, and I don't know, I tried to do a little bit of reading on this. To, this stuff, this currency, you, you have to, to, to use a you have to have your password to actually access it. Well, similarly, the peace and the love and the grace of God and his gospel, that, that $350 million, it is only ours. We only access it through. Faith. Now, when you think back over Ephesians, no doubt the quintessential passage on faith comes in chapter 2, particularly verses 8 and 9. Remember, we are told, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again, faith is the key that opens up the storehouse of God's blessings. Let me just pause and say that we are called by Christ to believe in Him. You must have faith in Christ. You must believe in Christ. You have to understand, just like that man with that $350 million that he can't get to, there is no salvation for you. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope. There is no heaven. There is no blessings. There is none of that apart from you personally believing in Jesus Christ. You have to entrust yourself to him. But of course, this just forces us to ask the question, well, what does that mean? What is faith? What is belief? If you were to ask 10 people this week if they believed in God, do you know what you would hear? You would hear 10 people that believe in God. Just don't ask them to define who this God is or what faith is. But this is important stuff, right? Because according to Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by grace through faith. So we better understand what faith is. This isn't a place where we can settle for sort of sentiments, right? What is faith? In its most basic and succinct form, please hear this, faith is just two words. Faith is renunciation and faith is reliance. It's renunciation and it's reliance. Faith is me renouncing all my efforts to save myself. It's me tearing up that resume and throwing it away. It's me abandoning all hope or trust in what I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do. And then it's me relying solely upon Christ, who he is, and what he has done to save me. That's what faith is. Faith is putting all my eggs in that basket. This is why one of our cries is sola fide. Faith alone, faith's confession is this, Christ and Christ alone must save, because I cannot save myself. But again, how does all of this fit within this benediction? Remember, a benediction is the pronouncement of God's blessing. So how does this idea of faith fit in here? Well, I think that it probably goes something like this. Grow in that faith. In other words, Paul's blessing upon them, the pronouncement is, May that faith ever increase. May that faith ever increase. May you only as a church continue to trust and treasure Christ. May all of your hope be in Him. Fix your eyes on him and him alone. Trust in nothing or no one else when it comes to your standing before God. And here's the kicker. That's the blessing, and that's where the blessing is found. It's found in putting our faith in Christ. Let me share with you the fourth and final word, the one that Paul just couldn't leave off, grace. He says, verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And I would submit to you that love and just like uh, 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 grace, just like love, I think it's one of those words that it's difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Grace is one of those words, especially if you've been in the church, you know, for more than three minutes Grace is one of those words that it's, that it's very easy to sort of attach a dictionary definition to it. And we should do that. We should know what we're saying. So you can say, well, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's rich kindness. Grace is God's tender mercy. Or maybe you like that acronym, grace, itself, which I think is pretty helpful. Remember this? What is grace? Grace is uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, don't get me wrong, that is all true. But my suspicion is that our problem is not with parsing out words. Our problem is with living in light of the truth of God's Word. In other words, our problem is not what is grace. Our problem is, do we believe in God's grace, do we live in light of God's grace? Paul tells us back in Ephesians 1, 6, the front end, that God's grace is a glorious grace. In the very next verse, Ephesians 1, 7, he speaks of the riches of God's grace. Then if you fast forward to Ephesians 2, verse 5, we are told, By grace you have been saved. Ephesians begins with grace. Verse 2 of Ephesians 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as you can see now, Ephesians ends with grace. Verse 24, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So as Christians, we sing as John Newton taught us to. We sing of God's amazing grace. But again, It fits easily into our head, but it doesn't always seep down that 18 inches into our hearts. Grace is something that Christians tend to get intellectually, but it's not always in our bloodstream, which is where it belongs. Perhaps you've heard the story of the man who appeared at heaven's gate. He was met by an angel who told him, it will take you 1,000 points to get in. Tell me about yourself so I'll know how many points to give you. The man smiled confidently and began to list off all of his accomplishments. He said, Well, I have been a member of my church for almost 50 years. Wonderful, the angel exclaimed. That will give you three points. What else do you got? The man smiled, quickly faded. Well, I, I was a faithful Sunday school teacher. I, I tithed regularly, and every potluck Sunday, I did not come empty-handed. I actually brought something to share. The angel responded, that's great. You have a total of 10 points. The man gasped. At this rate, I'll never get in except by the grace of God. Duh. You see, Christian, that's our only hope. We've talked about sola fide, but sola fide rests on sola gratia, grace alone. And in Christ, a tsunami of God's grace washes over us. It cleanses us. It leaves us dripping wet and soaked in the blessings of God. Well, as time is quickly expiring with this glorious benediction in front of us and, and how Paul has commended his beloved friend Tychicus, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes to just conclude our time in the Word together this morning by offering four comments in terms of application. Let, let me give you four gleanings from these last few verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For starters, don't miss the value of trusted Friends. You see, sometimes, if you're anything like me, we tend to read the New Testament, or maybe just Paul's letters, and we come away thinking that Paul was just this, like, one-man gospel machine. But he wasn't. He wasn't. He was a man used by God. Don't misunderstand me. But he was a man who was surrounded by other godly men and women. And his ministry, in terms of just sort of practical things... It depended upon them. It depended upon their prayers, their support, their help, their love, their encouragement. So here would be my exhortation to you, Christian. Don't stiff arm. Don't go the Lone Ranger Christian route. That's not the way. That's not the way to live the Christian life. You are supposed to join a church, and that doesn't mean that you just sign a piece of paper and then you show up when it's convenient. Not at all. It means that you join a church and that you give yourself to the people of God. You really lean into one another. You be open to them, and you be accountable before them, and you seek to use the gifts that God has given you for their good, just as they seek to use the gifts that God has given them for your good, Pastor Justin mentioned in his prayer, there was a handful of us that did some evangelism yesterday at a pride event, and I met with a couple of other Christians who were there, and everyone that I talked to, they weren't a part of a local church. One person told me that their pastors were online pastors that they listened to. My heart broke for these people. That's no way to live a Christian life. There's no way to do church membership, church discipline, to fulfill one another's, to submit to one another. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is this, the nitty-gritty, the rubbing elbows with one another, the forgiving one another, the being kind to one another, the going and having lunch with one another. This is the Christian life. It's a lot harder, but it's where the blessings are found. Second takeaway, don't walk away this morning without seeing that true theology results in true love. Paul had experienced the love of Christ. And it melted his cold, hard heart and gave him a warm, soft heart. He loved Tychicus. He loved the saints at Ephesus. He loved Christ. Let me speak then. I know I tend to pick on younger men, though a couple months ago I picked on older women, so this should get me in a lot less trouble. (laughs) Speak particularly to you younger men. If you're studying of theology and reading old dead guys and affirming reformed confessions, if the net gain of that is that you are prickly, haughty and recklessly combative, then you're doing it wrong. Just as high-octane theology, like the theology of Ephesians 1 through3, right? Election, predestination, total depravity, saving faith, the centrality of the local church. Just as that high-octane theology must translate into walking the walk, that's all of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, right? So it also must translate into genuine love. Love for Christ and love for one another. So you young men and you old men and... However, you women age yourself. Do you, verse 24, love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible? Not, do you love reading Puritans? Not, do you love the next systematic theology? Not, do you love winning arguments? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ do you love Him? If not, then repent. Look to God and cry out to Him. Cry out to Him and ask Him to give you a heart that truly loves the Savior. Third, let's make sure that we see that nobodies are somebodies. Here's what I mean. I think for some of us, we can fall into the trap of thinking that unless we are like overseas missionaries or unless we're like some big celebrity megachurch pastor, then we aren't really doing anything for Jesus. If we are just a computer programmer or just a homeschooling mom or just a retired widow or just a college kid, if that's, if that's us, and we're just sort of bumps on a log. Not even for a moment, Christian. You know who was a nobody? Tychicus. He's a nobody just like us. And he did great things for the kingdom of God. So Christian, I would encourage you this morning to be faithful where you are. To use the gifts that God has given you. To plant roots. To serve in the local church. And to be content with the fact that chances are no one's ever going to write a biography about you. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Because like Tychicus, we can be a beloved brother and a faithful minister. Like Tychicus, we can encourage hearts. And you know what Tychicus will hear? The same thing that Paul heard, and by God's grace, the same thing we will hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Nobody's are somebodies. Finally, Let's make sure we don't budge from this truth. Peace and love and grace, it is all found only in God and his gospel. That is the only well from which we can draw up this living water. When it comes to peace, Paul tells us in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, you might be struggling with this, but you need to understand that if you are in Christ, if you are believing in Him right now, your war with God has ended. God has already waved the white flag in the death of Jesus Christ. Quit fighting. Quit fighting. You are at peace with God. And all that awaits you in resurrection glory is more peace and more peace. When it comes to love, Paul instructs us in Romans 5.8 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, the eternal love of God for his covenant people, it is seen in space and time and history when you look at Golgotha. If you and I ever even begin to doubt the love of God, don't look in the mirror. There's nothing there to love. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. For that's where you see God's love in all its splendid glory. And then when it comes to grace, let's constantly live in light of the fact that it is by grace and grace alone that we have been received by God. Not by our works, not by our deeds. Ephesians 2, 8 again, for by grace you have been saved. Christian, it is true, grace is free, but it ain't cheap. It was bought and paid for in the very death of Jesus Christ for you. And that means that all that you receive from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future, it is all owing, every syllable is owing to the rich and scandalous grace of God. It's got nothing to do with you nothing. So in conclusion, I ask you, do you see this? Do you see where this living water is found? Do you want peace with God? Do you want to experience the love of God, the grace of God? Then the message of the gospel is receive Christ, rest in Christ, rely upon Christ, Everything else is a mirage. It's like building a majestic sandcastle. Soon the tides will come in and wash it all away. But Christ and his gospel and his promises, it is all eternal. So stake your life there. Stake your life on Christ. Join with me in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the last year, however long it's been, that by your grace we have, as a church, been able to hear the reading and the preaching of your word, particularly this letter of, of Paul to the church at Ephesus. We trust that we have benefited much by it. We believe your word that that just as the rain accomplishes the purposes for which you have sent it forth and waters the earth and causes seeds to sprout. So your word does not return void, but as it falls upon our hearts and our ears and our minds, so it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it forth. We trust that that has been true over the last year. We trust that has been true even now in this morning. We pray that you would give us hearts that would love Christ that you would renew within us a zeal to know Christ and to trust Christ and to live in light of Christ and his gospel. We pray that you would not let us, to do what, let us do what we would do in our own strength, and that is walk away from this place unchanged and unaffected, but instead cause your word to go deep into the recesses of our heart and bring forth righteousness. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.